Chet, I have to make a confession to you. You know, once you start studying a scripture passage, the, all those lines of describing all the musical instruments, you kind of just skim over. And then when you hear it read aloud, I thought, man, half this text is just describing the instruments that are involved in this. Thank you very much for, for doing that. Like I said, sometimes you just, you get to the meat of the passage and you just kind of start skipping over all these uh, other phrases that get repeated, I don't know, four or five different times through that passage. This Sunday is our second uh, sermon in the series, Lessons from the Exiles, as we're learning from those people in uh, the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that lived through this exile in Babylon and in Persia, and how they experienced life and the stories of their faithfulness in the middle of some really hard situations. You know, after last week's uh, message, I realized I was using a term, the empire, and I never really defined what I meant by that. Sometimes pastors, we uh, you know, we sit in our office and we read books, and I know what I'm talking about, but I didn't maybe uh, explain what I mean by empire. And so uh, it's in your bulletin, but also let me give it to you. My understanding of empire here in this series is the dominant culture and politics of our world. And it often uh, the empire uh, has its own form of civic religion. And civic religion means that in, uh, in our culture, there are uh, symbols, there are practices, there are sacred days that are shared in common by a nation or by a group of people. And uh, sometimes those take on very religious expressions, okay? And uh, we as the church need to just be careful and aware of how those symbols, those practices, those sacred days of the empire around us impacts and affects our lives. So that's kind of my definition of empire. As we come and we're taking a look at this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, would you pray with me? Jesus, we pause right now to ask you to be present with us as we take a look at this scripture. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a very familiar story to many of us. We grew up hearing it in Sunday school or Bible school. Um, maybe you... Uh, watched uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny. This is the VeggieTales version. Either you showed it to your kids or your grandkids or you grew up watching this story and how uh, they are tempted to bow down to the bunny, the bunny. Oh, I love the bunny. <laughs> Some of you, it's, I think it's in the church library. Go check out the video. It's a funny video. Or watch it on YouTube or something like that. Uh, when my parents were reading this story to us, they would, uh, we had like a thick picture Bible that they would often read to us. And if they did that before we were going to bed, which is often when our devotion or family time 
happened. Uh, then it got turned into Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. <laughs> so I enjoy this story, and it brings up fond memories for me. At the beginning of this text, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden statue. Scholars aren't exactly sure what this statue looked like, whether it was supposed to be a likeness of Nebuchadnezzar or whether it was a, a ziggurat that was common in ancient Babylon. But we are sure of the intent. Nebuchadnezzar gathers together the important people of his empire and coerces them to worship and bow down and to give their allegiance to the king. If you look at who he summons, it is the, all the, those names that Chet read for us. Satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, officials, all of the important people, all those people that have some role in administrating this empire are summoned to come and to bow down to the idol. Nebuchadnezzar tries to force or coerce their worship. We know that worship, love, is not something that can be forced upon us. This worshiping uh, that happens here at this idol or this giving allegiance to an idol or to a king or to anything that is not God is what the Bible calls idolatry. And so this is what's happening here in this text. The people are tempted with this idolatry. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. I was commenting to uh, Brenda this morning uh, that it's interesting to me. Uh, in chapter 1, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all given different names by the Babylonian king. And yet, Daniel remains Daniel throughout the book. That's his Hebrew name. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all go by their Babylonian names. I guess Daniel is writing this, so he has the prerogative to keep using his own given Hebrew name while the others have to go by their slave name, I guess, their empire name. We're not sure when the instruments were played what all of the people did. Not sure what all of the, the Jewish people did. Perhaps some refused to bow down and these three get singled out because of their status, their role in the empire. But we often assume that many of them caved in, gave in and, and bowed down, maybe thinking, well, everyone else is doing it. We might as well just try and blend in with everyone else. Or maybe we don't want to cause any problems. We don't want to uh, put ourselves at risk. And so let's just bow down. We, we'll, we'll confess. We'll ask God's forgiveness. We'll, we'll make a sacrifice later. And, and we all know that it's, it's just a gold statue. It's, it's not real. There's not really anything behind it. Maybe some caved in and bowed. It appears that the accusers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were jealous of these Jews who had been appointed to official positions in the kingdom, maybe at their own expense. And so when they see these three refusing to bow down, they come and they report it to the king. Oh, king, you made this decree. And these three have refused to bow and pay homage 
to you. What's interesting to me is when they're summoned before the king, these three, they're not belligerent or disrespectful to the king. They don't come and, and, they're, and they're not trying to cause problems or stir things up, but they say, king, we, we can't bow down to you. We can't bow to your idols. We can't perform this act that you are demanding of us. And the three friends become part of a long history of the people of God who refuse to bow to the idols of empire. They're part of a line of Jews who refuse to bow to Antiochus Epiphanes in this time between the Old Testament and the New Testament where this, this king came into Jerusalem and he raised a statue to Zeus. Uh, oftentimes they would call it the abomination that causes desolation in Jerusalem. And many Jews were killed for their refusal to bow down to the idol of Zeus. We have a long history of Christians who refuse to pay homage to Roman Caesars, who refuse to, to take the mark of Rome and bow down and worship these idols of these different emperors. Part of a, a long line that extends through our own Anabaptist tradition. Eusto Gonzalez, who's a church historian, said that more Anabaptists were martyred at the hands of Christians in the 16th century than were Christians martyred by Roman pagans during the first three centuries of the church. One of those who refused to take back her faith or, or to lessen it or weaken it in any way was a woman named Macon Wens. Macon Wens was an Anabaptist of the branch which became known as Mennonites. Her husband was a stonemason and a pastor of a group of these Anabaptists. She had nine children, one of whom would witness her cruel death. In the spring of 1573, church authorities in Antwerp arrested Wens and some other women who had been worshiping with her. They subjected them to torture in an attempt to get them to renounce their beliefs, which differed from the official church teachings on baptism and the Lord's Supper. But none of the women recanted or took back their beliefs. <clears throat> and so on October 5th of 1573, authorities sentenced her to death, along with her faithful friends. All were condemned to have their tongues screwed tight so they could not speak to the bystanders of Christ or of repentance. Often Anabaptists uh, would continue to witness and, and proclaim the good news of Jesus even on the way to their death. And so to get them to stop doing this, often men just had their tongues cut out. Women, they were a little bit more humane to, and they would put tongue screws on their mouth and, and singe the end of their tongue so that it would swell and keep them from proclaiming the good news of Jesus on the way to their death. Wens was burned at the stake. One of her sons came to be present at her execution. He fainted and passed out because of the grief he was experiencing. This etching is of when he woke up, he went and sifted through the ashes to find the tongue screw. 
and it was passed down in his family for generations. As they remembered her sacrifice and her willingness to suffer for her faith, to suffer for what she knew to be true, refusing to deny her faith in Jesus. This history of those refusing to bow to empire extends through a number of conscientious objectors who were persecuted, harassed, ostracized during World War I and II. What strikes me about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is their willingness to pay for their faith. If you look at verses 16 through 18, they say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense <coughs> to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. They believe wholeheartedly in God's ability to come and to rescue them, to intervene in the situation. But they say, look, if God chooses not to come right now in a visible way to save us, we want you to know that he is still God and we still will not bow down to your idols. We still will not give you an allegiance that is not yours Paul writes in Philippians 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in, by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These three refuse to give in to Nebuchadnezzar. Refuse to bow down to the idol. Refuse to fall in line with everyone else. They refuse to hand over their allegiance to someone or to something or to somewhere other than King Jesus and the kingdom of God. We're talking about faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Jesus, who conquers through the cross, who uses the towel rather than the sword. But in the New Testament world, there's one word that means both allegiance and faithfulness. It's the Greek word pistis. And sometimes it's most often translated as faith, but it carries this understanding of faithfulness or living out your faith, or giving allegiance to someone or something. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believe that Nebuchadnezzar may have their bodies. Christians in Rome said, Caesar can crucify us. He can take us to the gladiators. He can feed us to the lions. Faithful followers of Jesus may be burned at the stake, put in chains, or have tongue screws, but the king, the powers and the authorities, they cannot have our worship. They cannot have our love. They may not have our faithfulness. 
See, the ultimate Christian hope is resurrection. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they turn themselves over. They enter the flames not certain how or if God is going to intervene right then and right there. These faithful martyrs through the ages have believed that their death is not the end of the story. The truth is that the way of Jesus, of the cross, of the towel, of the the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, it often seems ridiculous to the world if it's not for resurrection. You and I live in a different kind of time and place and empire. Our society doesn't seem to care what religion you are as long as you agree with someone's predetermined views on the world that fit into 144 characters or 288 characters on a computer screen. The empire doesn't care if or where you go to church on Sunday as long as you vote for this party or that party that's the right party. In the end, God does come to the rescue of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says the fourth person in the fire has the appearance of a god. Christian commentators throughout history have often interpreted this as being a um, a manifestation of of Christ, of, of Jesus in the flames, walking with the people. God comes and he frees the men from their bonds. They leave the furnace unharmed, unscathed by the flames. It says, even without the scent of smoke on them. We had a fire last night at our house, and we all smell like smoke when we come in, just because we've been around the fire. These three come out without even a hint of the flames, of the smoke on them. Look, this message is nothing new this morning. In fact, it's a message that is a few thousand years old. Going back even before Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Moses confronted the empire of Pharaoh. The prophets spoke truth to corrupted kings of Israel and Judah in their idolatry. Jesus refuses to bow to Satan in the desert when Satan offers him all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus doesn't even dispute his claim. You can have those kingdoms. My kingdom is from another place. Peter and Paul, they refused to stop preaching the good news of Jesus. It cost them their lives. John writes an entire apocalyptic, I'll get that word out, apocalyptic book about the dangers of getting in line with the idolatry of empire in the book of Revelation. And for the first 300 years, the church stands up boldly against the idolatry of the Roman Empire. This message comes in the long line through Scripture and through the history of those faithful people of God who have refused to give their faithfulness to an empire other than the kingdom of God. So what does the empire have in store for those of us who walk faithfully with Jesus, refusing to bow to idols today? being ostracized, having things taken away from us, not 
receiving promotions, who knows? But my question is, do we trust in resurrection? And do we trust in the reign of God? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put their faith, their hope, their faithfulness, their allegiance in God. We will not bow to your idols, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't care what it costs us. There is one more powerful than you. Do we as the church today believe that same thing? Do we trust? Do we have faith and faithfulness to the kingdom of God? As we close this morning, I invite you to stand.